Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to bring you God's Word this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I also serve as one of the elders here at Stafford Baptist Church. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd, I'd invite you to, to hang out afterwards. I'd love to have a chance to greet you after our service this morning. We're continuing our sermon series, Restoring Repentance, this morning. Building a biblical framework for, for why and how the church is to deal with sin in the body, in the church. Today, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll consider the context of the whole chapter, but we are going to really camp out in verses 6 and 7. So please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And as always, you will be helped by keeping your Bible open for the whole sermon as, as you follow along. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and 7, the danger of tolerated sin. But before we read, it's appropriate for us to pause and pray, depending on God by faith, asking Him to, to bless the hearing and proclaiming of, of God's Word. And I invite you to, to make this prayer your own this morning. Join with me in praying, and, and if you agree, say amen at the end. Let's pray. Father, it is with great joy that we, as your body, confess that your grace is greater than our sin. Lord, that your grace cleanses us from our sin, that we might be made whole and new in Christ. In him, Lord, we are a new creation, not by our good works, but by your kindness to us. So, Father, it's with that confidence of your kindness, of your grace, that we ask for your continued grace. As we come to read of your word and, and think of the dangers of sin, Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in the provision for sin in Christ. And Lord, that you would give us seriousness about sin. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's, it's tragic how often people try to domesticate wild animals only for them to turn against their owners. We're convinced that we're, we're safe and secure all the while in the presence of of great danger. Are you ready this morning for some tragic stories? In August of last year, two lionesses mauled their owner, West Matthewson, to death. He had unlocked their cage to take the two for their daily morning walk. Or years earlier, Kelly Ann Waltz in Pennsylvania was cleaning the cage of her 350-pound black bear that she had raised from a cub. But that day, the bear attacked and killed its owner. Or Gerald Rushton, he kept a 500-pound red stag deer in a pen in his backyard, despite it being illegal in Texas. He entered the pen that day to feed the deer, but you can guess, the deer got aggressive and gored the man to death. Unfortunately, I could go on and on with more and even worse stories. People who got comfortable with a power that could destroy them, and they tragically paid the price with their life. It's amazing what we will tolerate despite its destructive potential. Now, I imagine none of us are keeping wild animals in our backyard as pets, but that doesn't mean that we're not tempted to do something similar. I tell you these stories because they're a powerful parable for sin. 
we too can get comfortable with a power that can destroy us. We too can coddle our sin, hold it close, even, even pet it. All the while knowing that it wages war against our soul. That our adversary prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Last week in our service we considered the process that Jesus gave to his church to pursue the repentance and restoration of sinners. Those in a settled comfort with a power seeking to destroy them. And we saw last week that the process, the goal of that process was to win our brother or sister back. That the lost would be found, that the sinner would repent, that this treasure would be gained back to the church. Well, this week in our sermon text, we are considering another reason given by God in his word that we are to deal with sin in the church. We deal with sin in the church because tolerated sin, like a domesticated predator, threatens the entire church. It threatens to destroy the whole body. It's not just for the sinner's sake that we act, but for all of our sakes. For the sake of the church. In our chapter this morning, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing some sin in the Corinthian church. A man is is guilty of sexual immorality, and the church is tolerating it, even boasting about it. How does Paul warn that church and, and us too this morning? Well, read with me our sermon text, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7. Just these two verses this morning. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The word of the Lord. Well, just just a few words here this morning in, in our sermon reading. What's the main point of Paul's warning here in 1 Corinthians 5? Well, I'd I'd summarize it like this. It's our our big idea for this morning. Be humble because tolerated sin threatens the whole church. Be humble because tolerated sin threatens the whole church. Yes, one of the reasons God has called us to, to deal with sin in the body is for the sake of the sinner to seek their repentance and restoration. But but here God in his word is giving us another reason for us to deal with sin in the body. Because it threatens everyone else as well. Paul, in our verses, uses the imagery of of leaven to describe sin. That it, it spreads and he calls us to cleanse it out of the body. Be humble because tolerated sin threatens the whole church. We are going to consider uh, the two verses this morning in three points. In three points. So first, the dilemma, tolerated sin. Second, the danger sins spread, and third, the directive, humbly remove. The dilemma, the danger, and the directive. So let's start this morning with our our first point, the dilemma, tolerated sin. The dilemma, tolerated sin. As I said, we're going to land, spend most of our time in verses 6 and 7 this morning, but but we can't make sense of verses 6 and 7 without without some context. So let's, let's consider the dilemma facing this church. What's going on in the church at Corinth that Paul writes about? If you know anything about the two letters that we have in the New Testament to the, the church at Corinth, 
you know that it had its fair share of problems. They were confused about marriage and divorce, about pagan rituals and, and order in their, their gathering. They were confused about spiritual gifts and, and more. The church was plagued with problems of, of division, of sexual immorality, of, of pride. So in, in this letter, in 1 Corinthians up through chapter 4, Paul is addressing their, their problems of division and the nature of, of God's wisdom. And you find in those first two, four chapters that the, the root of their problem is pride. Just three times in chapter 4, he calls them puffed up and arrogant. Well, as we come to chapter 5, Paul is still dealing with their, their pride. But now their pride is not actually dividing them. It's, it's uniting them. They're united in their pride in chapter 5. Look, look up at verse 1 with me. Paul reports what he's heard, likely from the same people who told him about the quarreling and division in the church. He has heard that there's sexual immorality among them. You see that word tolerated show up in verse 1. The kind of sexual sin in the church is so bad that it's something not even non-Christians would tolerate. But, but here they are. You see at the end of verse 1, the description of the problem. He says, a man has his father's wife. Judging by the way that Paul is describing it, it's likely that this man is in a sexual relationship with his, his stepmother. The wife of his father, who is not his birth mother. You know, Corinth, the city, was, was known for its sexual sin. Just in the next chapter, Paul will have to address men visiting prostitutes. But, but this kind of relationship, a man with his stepmother, was, was even forbidden by Roman law. Not to mention the, the Old Testament in places like Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 11. It was common sense to everyone that what this man was doing is wrong. This Christian is in, is in clear, serious, and unrepentant sin. And let's not fool ourselves. He didn't get there overnight. It didn't just happen in a day. It seems, by the way, that Paul addresses the church that the woman is not a member of the church. But if the church had been acting as it should have, this problem would have been dealt with long before it got to this point. You think, how, how did things get here with the church at Corinth? Had they ignored the process given by Jesus in, in Matthew 18, what we thought about last week? Did no one notice this man pursuing this sinful relationship and, and take him aside in private to tell him his fault? When that failed, when he didn't listen, did no one bring along one or two others? When that failed, did they not tell it to the church? Well, we see that the church at Corinth had already failed to persevere in the process of pursuing the repentance and restoration of the sinner. Instead of acting in love as they should, how is this church responding to the sin in their body? Well, in verse 2, Paul says they are arrogant. They are proud. In verse 6, he says that they're, they're boasting. To boast is to brag, to take pride in your accomplishments. Apparently, this church is, is so proud that they're tolerant, 
more tolerant even than the pagans. You can imagine them thinking, look how gracious we are. Or, or maybe they're even more pious than that. Earlier in the letter, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 31, he told them, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So maybe their boasting is, is in the Lord, like the Pharisee of Luke 18. They say, God, we thank you that we are so gracious, not like other men. Well, no matter how they try to wrap it up in pious language, it's arrogance. Instead, Paul says they ought to be mourning. Mourning is the proper response to sin. James, in chapter 4, 16, also addresses those who are, are boasting in their arrogance. He says all such boasting is evil, rather there to mourn. He writes, James 4, 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The proper response to sin is, is mourning. Now, tolerance has a place in the church. You can go read Romans 14 to learn all about how Christians are to exercise tolerance with one another. But the toleration that, that Paul speaks of in Romans 14 is, is toleration about opinions, about disputable matters. This, what's going on in the church in Corinth, is not a disputable matter. It's a clear violation of, of God's design and, and His sin. And sin is to be mourned, not celebrated. Christian, as long as sin remains, we will have reason to mourn. Just like Christians have a joy that the world does not know, we also will always have a sorrow that the world does not know. In their mourning for sin, Paul reminds them of their clear responsibility. There at the end of verse 2, the offender ought to be removed from among you, he says. Paul is referring here to the final step of, of church discipline, the process that we thought of last week, removal from the church. The church can no longer affirm this man's profession of faith because he refuses to repent of his sin. They're to treat him like a non-Christian. They're not to do this as, as retribution, but in obedience to Jesus' command in order to seek this man's repentance and restoration. You can look down at, at verse 5. Some of the shocking language of this text. He calls this removal as delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. You might think that language sounds harsh, but, but I want to remind you of one thing. There are only two kingdoms in this world, ultimately. There is no middle ground, no neutral kingdom like Switzerland in the world wars, right? Jesus is king of the kingdom of heaven. Satan is ruler of this world. So in this verse, in verse 5, Paul is saying that this man is, is no longer giving any evidence that he is in the kingdom of heaven. So he is in the only other kingdom that exists, that of the devil. But as harsh as that is, hear the goal. The goal, he says, is the destruction of the flesh. Yes, flesh might mean his physical body, but, but it certainly means his sinful nature. The goal for Paul is his sinful tendencies to be destroyed. 
He doesn't say how here, but, but that's the goal. And when his sinful tendencies are destroyed, when he repents, look at the end of verse 5. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Saved. Salvation is the goal. Removal from the body is is not to consign the sinner to, to condemnation. No, it is done in faith with hope that it will lead to salvation. Friends, God can rescue any sinner. Paul says even the chief of sinners. How much more, how much more a man caught in sexual immorality Well, that's the dilemma. That brings us to the end of verse 5, sin tolerated. Rather than loving the man by correcting him, they are boasting in their tolerance. So God, through his inspired apostle, has told them what they must do, remove this man. And through Paul, God is, is going to give us another reason why the Corinthian church and we too must deal with sin in the body. So our second point this morning, our second point, the danger Sins spread. The danger, sins spread. Look again with me at verse 6. He refers to their pride, their, their boasting. He is plain, it is not good. Your boasting is not good. Their toleration of this sin is, is bad. And why? What's his assessment of the danger? Well, first of all, we know that it's unloving for this man to leave him in his sin. But in verse 6, Paul gives us another reason why it is bad. He says it it threatens the whole church. He asks a rhetorical question. He, He uses the imagery of leaven here. He asks, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He assumes that they'll know the answer to this question. Of course, the little leaven leavens the whole lump. Those among us who bake bread will get this. Leaven is is any agent used to to make the dough rise. An example would be yeast. Leaven releases gases in the dough, making the bread rise and and less dense, something enjoyable to eat. In in Paul's time, they they likely kept a a bit of risen dough to add to the new dough, where the leaven would would spread and cause the new batch to rise, and they would keep... Uh, remaining of a piece of that dough for the next, next batch. And you only need a, a little bit. If you use yeast, only a tablespoon. A quarter cup of sourdough starter, I'm told. But this little bit is enough to leaven the whole lump. Well, Paul is not giving us baking advice. It's a metaphor, friends. Jesus, too, used this metaphor talking about sin, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as as leaven that spreads. Paul elsewhere talks about the spread of sin as as gangrene. It's a a disease, the the loss of blood to a body part that kills your, your body tissue. And what happens if it's left untreated? It might start in the toes or the fingers, but but it will spread through the whole body and eventually kill you. Or you might think of another modern parable, right? You can compare it to the spread of a a forest fire. You'll have heard this summer of the the bootleg fire in in Oregon. It burned more than 400,000 acres, and at its peak, it was spreading at at a rate of more than 1,000 acres per hour. It burned more than 400 cities 
or sorry, 400 buildings. The smoke was carried as far as New York City. And how did it start? All by a single lightning strike, a tiny fire. Paul is reminding us, sin is like leaven. It's like gangrene. It's like a forest fire. It doesn't stay contained. The danger is that sin spreads. We must deal with sin in the body because like leaven, it is dangerous. It spreads and brings destruction wherever it goes. It's as Paul would say later in this very letter, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. This is an example of of the influence of the leaven of sin. Keeping the wrong kind of company, kind of like this man in chapter 5, the man who has his father's wife, it corrupts the righteous patterns of, of other Christians, those they influence. Or it's the wisdom of Proverbs chapter 22, verses 24 and 25, where Proverbs tells us to, to make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man. Why? Lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. The danger, Proverbs says, of, of being friends, of going with an angry, wrathful man, is that you will learn his ways. Sin spreads. For better or for worse, we are influenced by the people around us. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Their beliefs and behaviors are, are contagious. It's a good time, Christian. To ask, who and what do you let influence you? Paul here doesn't mean for us to leave the world and its bad influences. He says that explicitly in verse 10, not meaning at all that you should leave the world. But be careful. Bad company ruins good morals. How is your choice of friends influencing you? Is your choice of of TV, of movies, of books, of games even, is it beneficial and helpful? Or is it harmful to your holiness, to your obedience to Christ? Even sitcoms are not morally neutral. Either you are being influenced toward holiness or drifting, drifting away. Paul gives us a a helpful question to consider in the next chapter, in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So the question to ask, even if it is lawful, is it helpful? Yes, it might be lawful, but but is the friendship, is the show, is, is the choice helpful to you spiritually? Well, at, at this point, you might think that Paul's warning here is a bit extreme. Surely, you say, not even pagans would accept this man's behavior. How could it spread among Christians? Well, I don't think Paul is only worried that this specific sin will spread, though it might. The danger is that sin will spread. Tolerance of one kind of sin opens up tolerance to other sins. What's the saying? Give an inch, take a mile. Small concessions lead to other 
to, to larger, to more varied concessions to evil. And frankly, that kind of objection is rooted in pride. It's the same kind of arrogance that the Corinthians had, that they were unconcerned with the danger of sin. God's infallible word has told you what you need to know. He says a little leaven does leaven the whole lump. Not might. Does. So the question, do you believe God? Are you willing to take his word for it? To trust in him and lean not on your own understanding? Or would you rather play in the lion cage with what God has told you? It will destroy you. Friends, Christians are to take sin seriously. Do you wonder why we read Joshua 7 earlier in our, our service? It's, it's a shocking passage, frankly. Especially if you're with us this morning and you're not a Christian, thank you for visiting with us. I want to explain to you and, and to the Christians here as well why it's important that we read and know stories like the one in, in Joshua 7. Yes, it is for Christians too. It is kind of God to show us the consequences of our sin. We didn't have time to read the whole story, but as Elliot explained, the, the man Achan stole things God had commanded his people to destroy. And God calls what he did an outrageous thing. He had sinned, and it had, been, had to be dealt with. If we read the rest of the story, what happens to Achan? And not just Achan, his whole family, all his possessions, well, they're killed. He dies. This is what you need to know about sin, brothers, sisters, guests. Sin is not a personality flaw. It is not a mistake. It's not a, a poor preference. No, sin is a personal offense against a holy God. It is evil in His sight, and by sin we are made, made guilty. God doesn't always deal with sinners as He dealt with Achan, but it's not because we're not as guilty as Achan. In Joshua 7, God is graciously showing us what all of our sins deserve. To quote the verse you know well, Romans 6, 23 the wages of sin is death. Sin deserves death. Paul wrote to Christians in Romans 8, 13, warning them, if you live according to the flesh, that is the sinful nature, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Friends, God not only motivates us with the reward of heaven you will live, but also with the reality of hell you will die. If you play with wild lions, bears, and deers, you will die. Christian, put sin to death and you will live. Brothers and sisters, both in, in Joshua 7 and in 1 Corinthians 5, God is graciously warning us of the danger of sin, and He's calling us to take it seriously. The danger sin spreads. 
So in light of that danger, what are we to do? Well, our third point this morning, the directive, humbly remove. The directive, humbly remove. Paul's already said in verse 2 and verse 5, but he repeats it again in verse 7 now with the imagery of, of leaven. Cleanse out the leaven. Cleanse it out. Remove the sinful influence that threatens the entire body. Be humble. Because tolerated sin threatens the whole church. So the opposite of, of their boasting and tolerance is the humility of cleansing the, the sin out of the church. You'll see in, in verse 7 that Paul makes a reference to the Exodus, calling Christ the Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. You might remember this story from, from the book of Exodus. The people of God were enslaved in Egypt, but they were finally freed after the tenth plague, when the angel of death killed all the firstborn in the land. You might remember when, when God delivered his people from slavery, they had to leave in such haste that the bread they took along with them had no time to rise. Exodus twelve thirty nine, And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Well, what does the nation of Israel continue to do in their history? Well, in remembrance of that, the nation celebrates an annual feast of unleavened bread. Seven days in which they would eat no leavened bread. And do you remember what feast started that week of unleavened bread? The Passover, right? The Passover, the annual meal, the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel. You see that the people of Israel were protected from the angel by the blood of the lamp spread on their doorposts. They deserved to die too. There was nothing that separated them from Egypt except that the Lord sheltered them in the blood of the sacrifice. And so, after the Passover feast, Israel was to cleanse themselves because their Passover lamb had been sacrificed. Do you see how Paul is using the Passover here in verse 7? Their Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ, therefore, cleanse out the leaven. Christians, too, have had our Passover lamb sacrificed, Jesus Christ. The Passover meal that, that Israel celebrated points us to the ultimate and final deliverance from slavery, slavery to sin. We are protected, likewise, from God's angel of death, his anger against our sin by the blood of the spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He shed his blood not for our doorposts, but for our souls, dying in our place on the cross, in his, in his body, receiving the punishment that our sins deserve. For any sinner who will repent of their sins and place their faith in his sufficient sacrifice. Now, instead of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, brothers and sisters, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we will celebrate this morning. Remembering in this feast of the new covenant, the Lamb of God given for us. All who take shelter under his blood will be spared what their sins deserve, death. And will receive eternal life now and in the age to come. All of us, 
You too can have this gift today if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ and follow him in the obedience of faith. And in light of that, since our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7? He says, cleanse out the old leaven. He calls us to celebrate the feasts of unleavened bread Not in the old way, but but now in the new way, by removing the leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, he calls it in verse 8. Two things I want you to notice, brothers and sisters. First of all, the Old Testament is about Jesus. The Passover is to prepare us for Jesus. It's pointing forward to the ultimate Lamb of God whose blood shelters from God's good wrath. But, But second, church... Paul is calling us to be who we are. He says, cleanse out the old leaven as you really are unleavened. God has purified his church by the sacrifice of his son. Everyone who is reborn from above, who is given the gift of repentance and faith, indwelt by the spirit, they really are, he says, unleavened. 1 John 5, 18, we know, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You are a new creation in Christ. You have newness of life. Live like it. Give evidence of your new birth from above. Put off the old self if you have been taught in him and put on the new self. All ways to tell us to cleanse out the old leaven. So this directive, this command that Paul gives is rooted in the good news of the gospel. The gospel that has the power to change. Yes, Christians still sin. But as 1 John tells us, they do not keep on sinning. When corrected, by the grace of God, they repent. You might take a friend or two or three. Or the whole church. Or even our removal from the church. But true Christians in time repent. All because of the work of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Now I can imagine maybe some of your internal monologue at this point. Someone thinking, amen, I agree, praise God. Of course we are to remove from the body the leaven of sexual immorality. That is clear. But I want to point out. To us here. The directive humbly remove is not just about sexual immorality. That's the clear and easy case. But it's just a start. Look down in your Bibles with me to verse 11. Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Yes, he begins his list with the brother in this church, the one guilty of sexual immorality, but he goes on. This applies to the one who bears the name of brother and is guilty of greed, who is an idolater, the reviler, a drunkard, and swindler. Yeah, we're talking about greed. As in the person who is guilty of the clear, serious, and unrepentant sin of desire for more. The one who is ungenerous, who is self-seeking, 
Or he says the reviler, the one who uses his words to abuse and slander in an unrepented way. And that's just a sampling. This list isn't exhaustive. Any unrepentant unrighteousness disqualifies us from the kingdom of God. Paul powerfully makes this point exactly for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the next chapter, verses 9 through 11, where he lists the the same sins we just read of and, and more. He writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The key Brothers and sisters, is there in verse 11. Such were some of you, but no longer. You were washed and sanctified. You have been changed, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The good news that the church offers to the world is not just that you are forgiven, not just that you inherit the kingdom of God with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, But all who are reborn from above have been truly changed. Still imperfect, yes, with setbacks, but truly and really different from who we once were in our sin. But you were washed. We know, John says, that everyone who has born of God does not keep on sinning. And when we remove the brother from the church, when he refuses to repent we are reminding them of this truth. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. How about you, brother, sister? Does it seem arrogant to you to remove people from the church? Who am I to judge? We need our instincts trained by the Bible. God's good and perfect word says the opposite. It is arrogant not to. Your boasting is not good. Real humility means obeying God's word, mourning the sin and removing the unrepentant because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Christians take sin seriously in ourselves and in our body. We cannot play in the cage with what God has told us will destroy us. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, be humble because tolerated sin threatens the whole church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That we read that list in 1 Corinthians 6 and say, yes, such were some of us, but we have been washed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, we praise you that we have been changed and born of of God. And Lord, we praise you that the gift of our rebirth is repentance. Lord, that you have shown us our sin. Lord, that as David confessed in Psalm 32, when we kept silent, we wasted away. But when we confessed to you, Lord, we knew the prosperity of your mercy. 
Father, we pray that this day you would give us the humility to take sin seriously because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.